Well, hello, Kindred Church. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, whether you are with us tonight as a guest and you're visiting family or being here every Wednesday is part of your weekly rhythm, I'm so glad uh, that you have chosen to spend it with us. Uh, this is the last week, as Zach said, of this three-month study that we have been in on the book of James. And over the course of these last five chapters, we have been able to see that James is extremely practical. So he is deeply concerned about people of faith living and doing and acting in a way that is consistent and congruent with what we say we believe. And so this is to say that James cares a lot about our growth and our becoming and our integrity as people whose inner life, that would be our thoughts and our feelings and our motivations and our outer life. So our decisions and our actions and our reactions, that those things match up and that they reflect the character of Jesus. And so James is passionate about the things that he saw getting in the way of living with this kind of integrity for the believers of his time. And we find that centuries later, we are still very able to relate. So he talks a lot about enduring difficulty and perseverance. He talks about self-interest and this temptation to only look out for ourselves. He talks about the deceptive wisdom of the world. And last week, we talked about money. And so it is fitting that he ends this letter with a call to the most practical application of our faith, which is prayer. Prayer. Now, I don't know what kind of associations you immediately make when you hear that word, but I would imagine we probably land all over the place. So maybe for you, prayer is the comfort of routine and repetition. So the ritual of saying the same words right at the dinner table or every night before bed, it's like this sure and steady muscle memory right, that you can return to, that you can lean on, that you can kind of exhale and settle into. And as you hear those words in their rhythm, you're able to kind of block out the chaos and the noise from your day. Maybe for you, prayer seems more like a ridiculous superstition. The same way that sports fans won't wash the clothes that they wore when their team won for fear of changing the outcome, maybe prayer seems like this formula that if you get it right, well, then you get what you want. And at worst, it's this delusion, right, that maybe helps people feel like they're more in control. Maybe for you, prayer is strictly cathartic. So it feels like screaming into the wind. You're not really sure if God can hear you, if it's going anywhere, if it does any good to really change anything. And so sometimes that might feel maddening, but other times maybe you figure, well, I'll just feel better if I get it off my chest. Whatever your relationship to prayer currently looks like, I want to offer us another possibility. Presuming that you have felt that mysterious and undeniable sense that there is a creator and that maybe that creator does want to be connected to you, his creation, prayer is a thin place. A thin place. The first time I heard about thin places was years ago uh, when reading one of my favorite books of all time, Bittersweet, by author Shauna Nequist. It's actually a Celtic idea that the barrier between the natural world and the supernatural world becomes thinner and almost more flexible or sheer in some places. So for our purposes, a thin place is somewhere where the distance between the ordinary and the divine, it shrinks down 
that gap closes and the presence of God feels closer and more tangible. And so for me, the ocean has always been a thin place. The way it stretches on and on and the horizon kind of plays tricks on my vision, right? Making it seem endless. The way it's both powerful and dangerous and crushing, yet at the same time, I can wade into it, right? I can float, that the ocean almost holds me. I'm more aware of God when I'm near the water. And so certain moments in time, specific conversation, memorable experiences, like the day you got married or the day your children became a part of your family, these can all be thin places, but they aren't always happy or celebratory. They can also be really difficult and painful. So if you were here in August when Lara, one of our board members, taught, you'll recall she talked about the day that she lost her, her nephew to his battle with cancer. And she described something she had never quite felt before. She talked about this otherworldly peace, the way that heaven seemed closer, the way it seemed more real, the way it seemed to fill up the air she was breathing. And so loss and sickness and pain, those can make for thin places too. So James understood prayer as a thin place, as this opportunity to acknowledge the the way that this space between what is happening on earth and the presence of God, that space dissolves, right? We become closer. Theologian N.T. Wright, he describes prayer as having one foot here in our world, our world of pain and of trouble and darkness, and the other foot in a place of perfection and of healing and of eternal light. And so prayer is not superstition. Prayer is not a delusion. It is certainly not a code that you have to try and crack, but prayer is touching both worlds. And so with that in mind, we're going to jump back into chapter 5. We're going to look at just a slice of James' final encouragement. He begins like this. He says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Well, let them sing songs of praise. So James uses a very broad and general word for suffering or for trouble here. So it's not just limited to sickness or to physical pain, but it's meant to capture every dimension of struggle. So it includes everything from suffering betrayal or suffering loss, suffering rejection, Trouble can mean family conflict. It can mean financial distress. Anything that causes you disappointment or overwhelm or sadness and grief, James says to pray. But I think it's important that we acknowledge something here, that it is usually our suffering and our ongoing pain that distorts our perceptions of God, convincing us that he is either cruel or he's indifferent or he's powerless. And when we imagine God to be harsh or uncaring or weak, well, then we're probably less inclined to want to talk to him about our struggle. We instead want to distance ourselves from God, or we want to shut him out altogether. Well, James understood this temptation, the way that suffering, it can warp our view of God, deceiving us into believing that he is something that he is not, And that draws us away from him. But the Bible offers us an alternative. Instead of neglecting that pain, the Bible would encourage us to lament, 
to take our complaints, our grief, and our desperation to God instead of trying to withhold it from him. So there's precedence for this all throughout the Old Testament. There's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, where the humiliation and the suffering of Israel is described during their time in exile. And many of the Psalms are this. They're expressions of confusion, of sadness, of anger. And so prayers of pain and suffering, of lament, they are not solutions to the problem. They're not about providing justifications for why we're having to endure such struggle, but they help us just to acknowledge how we are feeling. They help us to acknowledge our misery before God, turning towards him instead of away. Though again, what we expect from God, that will often determine whether we feel like we can approach him or not. And so I want to share something with you uh, that I have recently learned from a pastor and professor. His name is Dane Ortland. His book is called Gentle and Lowly. It is an incredible read, and it has absolutely transformed parts of how I understand suffering and how I understand needing Jesus. So it is fairly intuitive for us that we might imagine Jesus is probably pleased or he is happy with us when we do the things that he says are right or are true or are best, right? But he poses a different question, which is what if Jesus also experiences joy, not just when we do the right thing, but when we struggle to do the right thing and when we need help? when we're in places of pain, because this is exactly what he was sent into the world for. This is precisely what Jesus lives for. So maybe we figure that Jesus will be annoyed with our requests, that he will be exasperated at our pleas for help, that he wishes to just be left alone to deal with matters that are surely greater than our problems. Or maybe we picture a cold, detached, kind of know-it-all Jesus that expects us to be able to figure this out all on our own. This is not who Jesus is, and this does not describe his heart towards us. Ortland points to Hebrews 12 to support, right, that the living Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, actually experiences joy when we come to him, when we approach him for mercy and for help. He doesn't begrudge our prayers of pain. And he eagerly then reaches towards us with this compassion, with his comfort, with his tenderness. He has no other way of being towards us. When we go to Jesus, when we reach out to him for help, gentleness is his only way of being back towards us. So if we knew to expect that, if we knew to expect only kindness and gentleness from Jesus, if we understood that in our prayers of suffering and in our desperation, he's not going to recoil away from us, frustrated or annoyed, but that it actually brings him joy to be able to move towards us, to give us his strength and his help, that that is the very desire of his heart. Would we be then a little bit more eager or open, or willing to pray in our times of trouble. James also recognizes that life is not always one way, but it's usually a mixed bag of bad and good, of life and death, both beautiful things and brutality. 
So he is sure to speak to the lighter side of life when he says, is anyone happy? Right? The word for happy is also this general and kind of broad term. It means to be in good spirits. So it doesn't necessarily mean that our life is totally problem-free, but it means that our circumstances, they haven't sunk us that we're able to maybe kind of float above them or through them. It describes the way that in some seasons, life feels a little lighter. Maybe we're not as weighed down. We don't carry so much heaviness. Well, then James says to this, sing songs of praise. Because just as struggle and suffering can draw us away from God, so can times of ease in these seasons when maybe it feels like everything is going our way, we can tend to grow complacent or we begin to rely on our own strength, our own ability to cope with whatever life gives us because things are working out well right now, believing that maybe we have somehow outgrown our need for Jesus. So James is making the point that seasons in our life will turn and our situations will change. We will move in and out of struggle and ease, though our response, every time, our response, no matter where we find ourselves, should be prayer, should be turning and orienting ourselves towards God. So prayer is about this intentional shift in our focus. It's this open invitation to a thin place, to meet with God, to be in his presence, no matter our condition. And so lament is when we reorient our pain and our confusion, when we reorient towards God, acknowledging that we need his power. And then praise is when we reorient our gratitude and our joy, acknowledging that God is a God of goodness and that he gives good gifts. James goes on. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, well, then they will be forgiven. A misunderstanding of this passage might lead us to some very harmful conclusions about God, about prayer, and about healing. So what is James really saying? here. Let's make note of just a few things. The first is how James understood this responsibility of those appointed as elders or as overseers of the local church as part of their role in caring for and watching out for the well-being of those in the church. This group of leaders, they were expected to give special time and attention and dedication to praying, praying for the sick and healing. So for some more context, it was a strongly held belief amongst the Jewish tradition and of people who lived in the first century that physical illness was a direct consequence of your sin. So it was a punishment for disobeying God. And sickness was often spiritualized to an extreme degree. So here's how this might play out. Um, this is not my example. I stole it from a TV show, but I think it works to explain this. So imagine a teenage boy eats a few poisonous wild berries while playing hide and seek. He becomes very, very sick to the point maybe of seizing or convulsing, and he's foaming at the mouth at times. 
And then eventually his breathing becomes really shallow. The boy is unresponsive and his pulse is starting to slow. He's becoming very pale and gaunt. Without knowing what happened, without knowing that he ate just a few poisonous berries in the wild, right? Because of this assumption that sickness is always associated with sin, this assumption that sickness is strictly spiritual, his mom, the first call she might make would be to a priest, right? Or to the elders of the local church because she thinks, right, this boy that is seizing, unable to breathe, unresponsive, is maybe possessed, Right? This is how this might play out. And she might believe that then the reason for his sickness and then the means of him getting better are strictly spiritual, that there couldn't be another explanation. Now, in the modern world, we have the advancement of medicine. Right? We have access to things like Google and WebMD for better or worse. Right? If you're my husband, it's always for worse. Like, don't get on WebMD. So then how should we treat these verses? How are we supposed to make sense of them in light of what our world looks like now? Okay, are we supposed to take these verses to mean that when we get sick, well, we don't call a doctor anymore to seek healing? Okay, no. There is plenty of precedent in Scripture to understand medical technology, doctors, surgery, as evidence of God's provision and his goodness, right? Remember, if we go back to chapter one of James, right, he states that every good gift is from God. So we can understand these advancements, this availability, right, of knowledge, of having experts in this field as a gift, as a provision from God. So please still go to your doctor if you're sick. Right, but this is intended to say that there is a spiritual element to all healing, that our bodies and our souls, they can't be divided so that one doesn't affect the other, but they're interconnected. And so maybe a call to the doctor isn't the only call that we make, that as we get news of a diagnosis, as we undergo treatment, as we prepare and recover from surgery, we bring that circumstance to God too. Right? And maybe we need to call on the support and the belief of others when we're weak to hold us up. And for James to specifically call on the leaders of your church to exercise their faith on your behalf when yours maybe feels fragile or weak. Now, let's make an important and a clarifying distinction. When James talks about the prayer of faith, is the phrase here in verse 15, he actually uses a different word for prayer than he has in the rest of the passage. And this phrase, a prayer of faith, it isn't found anywhere else in the New Testament. So we've mentioned this before in this study, but this is significant because James was an expert in the Greek language. And he has already stressed in this teaching, right, the importance of our words, that our words matter. And so he is signaling something unique. The fact that this is a, a different word entirely and that we don't see it repeated often, he, he's naming something distinct going on here. Right, here is what James is not saying. He is not saying that all of our prayers are intended to work this way in this perfect, linear, cause and effect fashion. In fact, the majority of our prayers aren't prayers of faith, but they're more like prayers of resignation where we're just not even sure where to start. 
We don't know what it is we should ask for or how we're supposed to move forward. And so James is not saying that we have to be sure of what we need before we talk to him, before we go to him. James is also not saying that God offers his help to the degree of our faithfulness, that his response to us is determined by our level of confidence and assurance. So it would be an abuse and a weaponization of this verse to then torture ourselves with the thought, if I just had more faith, God would have answered. God would have cured the cancer or the depression or the infection. Right? So to be clear, James intends to draw our attention not to the elders and not to those who are praying, not to how much faith they have, but to emphasize the power of who it is they are praying to. And so when we pray for healing, we are not declaring an outcome, but we are instead declaring the character of God, that he can do all things, that this God we hope in, that he is generous, that he won't withhold from us, and that he bends down to hear us when we lift our voices to talk to him. So prayers offered in healing, offered in this posture, they're an admission that we're actually very limited by what we think is best, by what we know, by what we can see. And so trust. We then trust that the outcome of this sick person to the will of God. And then we believe that this will is good and is loving and is kind because that's who we know God to be. Well, what if healing doesn't come after this prayer of faith? I think we've all asked a version of that. I prayed with confidence, with faith. I trust that God is good and loving and kind, and I didn't see the outcome I wanted. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. It is dangerous for us to assume we could know the will of God. And so we shouldn't presume to be able to answer such big questions that are reserved for God and his infinite knowledge and his infinite goodness. And so I'm not going to try to. But I do know, I do trust that this good, loving, infinite God is with us that that is who we trust people to when we ask for healing, we ask these kinds of prayers. So prayers of healing, they're ultimately prayers of surrender. They're not a formula by which we can guarantee or manipulate this outcome that we so desire. But they're a way of facing what is broken and fractured and wrong about this world that is always so evident when there is a sickness And then we also face the hope and the promise and the restoration of Jesus. We do both of those things at the same time. We touch both worlds when we pray for others. So maybe more than ever, praying for the sick is a way of standing in a thin place, inviting the presence of God to fill out all of that space around us. Our prayers hold power. They hold the power to change our perspective, to protect our hearts from despair, and to protect our hearts from pride. And so we're going to close a little differently 
tonight than we have before. We wanted to use this opportunity to pray intentionally, no matter the condition of our heart or our circumstances. We are invited to lament and to praise. We are invited to petition and to surrender, both individually and as a community. We wanted just to carve out some space where you could meet with God, to establish a thin place right here, where you could encounter and respond to the Holy Spirit. So during this last song, there are a few invitations open to you, and they are just invitations. You don't have to take us up on it, but you are invited to. The first is that you can take this time to just close your eyes, and in the privacy of your own heart and your own mind, have a conversation with God. You can sing. You can stand quietly. Just take some space to ask him something or to admit that you don't know what to ask for, but that you need him. The words don't have to be perfect or fancy, right? but just to maybe thank him for the good things you have experienced in your life. That's the first. The second is that we have asked some of our board and some other leaders that we trust to be available to pray for you. They're going to be standing in the back of the room on either side of the small round tables. And if you're comfortable as we sing this next song, if that feels right to you, if you feel like that's just something you are supposed to do, well, then you can go and you can ask them to pray for you. And they will. Whatever it is you need prayer for. And then third, it is a unique privilege to get to pray for one another, to get to talk to God, to the creator of the universe on behalf of someone else. And so this is part of what it means to belong to each other, that when our belief in God wavers, when it tends to feel a little fragile or frail, we can actually depend on the faith of others. We can depend on their belief in God to represent us, to go before us. So if you want your prayer or your request or your gratitude to remain anonymous, if you're not comfortable walking up to somebody and asking for prayer, we're going to have a number on the screen throughout this next song that you can text a request into. And it won't have your name. There will be no way for us to identify that that is you. But then in real time, as you submit those requests, Zach and I will then take moments to come and we will pray as a church for you. And we won't know who you are, but you will know that this entire room has talked to God on your behalf. And so you're also invited to do that if that feels like the right option for you. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. And if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Kindred, would you stand? And would you spend some time praying with us?